Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's time for reflection and to talk about General Louis Boerter, whose invasion into Natal fizzled out, leading to his commander being forced to flee Lord Kitchener's columns back to the eastern Transvaal. But all is not lost for the man who would one day become South Africa's first Prime Minister. It's the final days of October 1901 when he returns to his base, roving the felt somewhere between Ermelo and the Swaziland border. This is a region dominated by rolling, grassy, undulating hills, then high mountains further east closer to Swaziland as the landscape breaks up into dolomite fractures where whole armies lurk. And the Boers have learned to keep well away from the Swaziland border, where the chiefs have been palavering with the British. Back to Boerter, though, in a moment. First, let's take a look at what's happening in Britain, where the war had dragged on for long enough for the tabloid press to begin a sharp campaign against General Buller. He, you remember, had been replaced in South Africa by Lord Roberts, who himself had been replaced by Lord Kitchener. Buller was pilloried in newspapers through October 1901, particularly The Times and The Spectator. On Thursday, Sir Redverse Buller, presiding at a luncheon given by the Queen's Westminster Volunteers, a Spectator editorial opined under the headline, The Mistake of General Buller made a speech in which we believe that the nation will find the best possible justification for the declarations which we and others have made that Sir Redverse Buller is not a fit and proper person to be entrusted with the great and responsible duties involved in the command of the First Army Corps. Wait, it gets worse. We would fain say no more about the speech for it is one which can only be fairly described as pathetic in its weakness and inconsequence. Well, that's not all, folks. Unfortunately, it is impossible for us to pass it over, for it must be urged upon public notice as one of the reasons which oblige us to continue our protests against the recent appointment to the First Army Corps. We can safely assume that the editors do not consider Buller a great leader of men although his men who fought with him in Natal would disagree. The reality of his meandering about and his blithe incompetence as he wandered about trying to lift the siege of Ladysmith, not to mention the terrible battles of Spionkop and Dundee, Calenzo, and others where he'd been defeated by a much smaller army of Boers had forever sullied his name. Buller then made the mistake of going after the media in his speech, including the Morning Post, which had hired Winston Churchill as a war reporter. Buller had inferred that an elderly man had warned him that people in the war office were out to get him and were using newspapers to achieve their ends. Gasp! Fake news! Back to the article published on 12 October 1901 in The Spectator. General Buller draws a picture of Colenso, which again we can only describe as pathetic. The editor continued, really putting the boot in. And then tells us how, into the middle of a heliogram to General White, he spatchcocked a sentence. Well, to spatchcock a sentence implies an insertion. In this case, Buller was trying to defend his heliograph message, where he had indicated to General White, who was holed up in Ladysmith, that perhaps surrendering to the Boers was an option. A dishonorable suggestion. Buller claims he was misquoted. He wasn't. This was an indictment of both Buller and the British, who at that stage of the war made a complete hash of lifting the siege on a strategic town. 
The published note destroyed Buller and his dull leadership in Natal had led directly to losses. The editorial finished with a flourish that the government was letting the people of Great Britain down by refusing to release more information. The Times had published this notorious heligraph, much to the chagrin of the war office. But now it was too late. Everyone knew that Buller had suggested surrender over an honourable defeat. When public disquiet increased over the continued guerrilla activities by the defeated Boers, the Minister for War, St. John Broderick, and Lord Roberts looked about for a scapegoat. The opportunity was provided by the numerous attacks in the newspapers on the performance of the British Army by one Sir Redverse Buller. And so the matter came to a head when a virulent piece written by Times journalist Leo Amory was publicly answered by Buller in that speech on the 10th of October 1901 that so horrified the spectator's editors. St. John Broderick and Robert saw the opportunity to pounce and summoned Buller to an interview on the 17th of October. That's where Broderick, with Roberts in support, demanded his resignation on the grounds of breaching military discipline for attacking the military leadership so openly. Buller refused and was summarily dismissed on half pay on the 22nd of October. His request for a court-martial was then refused, as was his request to appeal to the king. Buller's downfall following October was precipitous. And back in South Africa, watching all this closely was Lord Kitchener. These military leaders were always acutely aware of what newspapers were writing about them and constantly sought to ensure that their honourable names were not besmirched in editorials of the sort we've just heard. What was bad news for Kitchener and other British army leaders in South Africa was the concerted attacks on Buller were only the beginning. The campaign had whetted the appetites of the press. In the first week of November, the Spectator would follow up this rampage against Buller with a highly critical article denouncing Kitchener for incompetence and calling for his removal. This was a blow to the field marshal in South Africa and Lord Kitchener was crestfallen. The general analysis now is that Kitchener had more or less brought this upon himself. Even Winston Churchill was making speeches by late October 1901, criticising the saviour of the Khartoum and questioning the entire strategy in South Africa. Ever since the collapse of the Middleburg peace talks earlier in 1901, Kitchener had been conducting the war under protest. He had opposed Lord Milner's blocking of the amnesty for colonial rebels, which Kitchener thought would have ended the war. It wouldn't, as we know, and also tried to halt Milner's program to restart the gold mines prematurely at the expense of the war effort. Many thousand troops were required to guard these mines instead of hunting Boers on the felt. He had a bone to pick with the British government, which had sent him tens of thousands of substandard horses and with Chamberlain for refusing him a free hand to crush the guerrillas by banishment or summary execution. Kitchener's written reports to Broderick at the war office through October had ill-concealed resentment in virtually every line. Extermination is a long and very tiring business, wrote Kitchener menacingly. They seem as fanatically disposed to continue the war as ever, and I fear it can only end by us catching almost all of them. The Boers were wearing Lord Kitchener down while his own journalists were beginning to snipe. It is hard work for our men. If you think that someone else could do better out here, I hope you will not hesitate for a moment in replacing me. It's not like the Sudan, and the disappointments are frequent. As we'll hear in a moment, another major disappointment was imminent. At this precise point, as Kitchener concocted his own form of victim psychosis, 
General Louis Butter was to deliver a blow that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It took place on the 30th of October, 1901. Kitchener had written on the 1st of November, I now think the remainder of the Boers are determined to resist to the last, and that it would be admirable to send any troops you can spare. Meanwhile, in the eastern Transvaal, Kitchener's call for fresh troops was timious. General Louis Butter was having a torrid time dealing with Lieutenant Colonel Benson, who had emerged as the scourge of the Boers in the eastern Transvaal, having built a name as the fastest-moving British commander who was using Boer tactics to overwhelm his opponents. For Butter, Benson appeared to be his nemesis, constantly niggling at the Boers, never letting them sleep. Benson never lagered or camped at the same place for more than two nights in succession, and his men were usually saddled up and moving at 3 a.m., long before dawn. This meant Boer scouts were often confused about Benson's plans. They longed to destroy him and his group of nearly 1,400 men, were the only troops in that part of the Eastern Transvaal, until Rawlinson showed up with a second column from the Free State, leading to a dawn attack on General Louis Butter himself. In October, the British had captured a dispatch rider and read the message which outlined where the Boer general was hiding. Colonel Benson and Rawlinson surrounded the farm, cornering Butter, but somehow he managed to escape by the skin of his teeth, along with his son and a few followers. The general's hat and a bag of correspondence, though, were left behind. The Boers now regarded the destruction of Benson as a matter of national pride and waited for their opportunity. It came when Rawlinson and the other column left at the end of October and returned to the Free State. At the same time, General Boerter ordered fellow commandos Brits, Fulun and Krobler to join him in his quest as they began to hunt Benson, who was hunting them. Colonel Benson had refitted his unit of 800 horsemen and 600 infantrymen who guarded his column of 350 wagons and carts. They were the backbone of his army, the supplies that allowed him to range so widely and so successfully, and it was this cargo that Boerter and his scouts were eyeing with some jealousy. By the end of October, Benson's supplies were beginning to run out as he approached the eastern Transvaal town of Bethel. This region is characterized by these undulating grasslands. Driving here during the day in modern times is dangerous because the roads are straight, but you can't see oncoming traffic lurking in the dips and where distance is difficult to gauge in the shimmering mirages. In 1901, the British would not have been able to keep an eye on all the threats all the time, as Boerter hid in these same dips, using his scouts on the grassy hills to keep the British under close scrutiny. It was unclear to either side who was actually following whom. Benson was close to the main railway line between Pretoria and Delagoa Bay, near Bethel, and here he was harried by Boerter's men one day in driving rain and wind. At 4.40am on the 30th of October, Benson's column struck across the shallow undulations heading towards Balmoral, heading eastwards following the railway line. Still the rain fell and the mist thickened. At 1pm, the column outspanned their oxen, allowing them to roam about, feeding on the spring grass, sweet and thick. This region is full of mist in the spring and summer. Winds blow in, carrying moisture from the ocean and rise at the edge of the plateau, thickening in the early mornings and late afternoon when the conditions are just right. And they were just right on the 30th of October. Benson's column was now strung out along a two-mile length of the Balmoral-Bethel Road, when the rear guard experienced a shock. As the mist thinned with the wind whipping about, they saw 
the small squad of Boers that were following them had turned into a large commando. The threat was immediate, and for many, unfortunately, terminal. General Louis Boerter was about to teach Lieutenant Colonel Benson his final lesson of the Anglo-Boer War. This was personal, as personal as the ongoing attempts to capture General Jan Smuts by General French and Haig in the Cape. Boerter had ridden the last 30 miles of a 70-mile ride in a single session, driving his commander with his energy and not stopping once as they made for the British column. And for once, Colonel Benson and his eight-lander spy handler, Wills Sampson, had been outthought. Remember I mentioned in an earlier podcast how much Wills Sampson was hated by the Boers as a person who'd lived in Johannesburg and was part of the group that had called for this war. He was hated even more because he was clever enough to use the Boers' own techniques of scouting and knew every inch of the land through which they moved. Wills Sampson though, and Benson had allowed the convoy to spread out too far in the mist. Now they would pay. Critically, Lieutenant Colonel Benson himself had decided to ride to the rear guard to see how matters were working out in the wind, the rain and the mist. It was now 2pm. Benson had just ridden up to the stragglers and he was unaware of the extent of the danger at first. He realised that the rear guard was in a weak position and ordered them to move up to the top of rising ground and place two guns in position to protect the column, which was immediately christened Gun Hill. From there, as the mist was waved back and forth by the whipping wind, they could just see the outline of their main camp back through the undulating landscape. As the main body of the rear guard began their move up to the top of Gun Hill, General Boerter issued the order to charge. There were more than 800 men in Boerter's commando, riding straight at a group of fewer than 180 British. Boerter, though, was unaware that his nemesis was literally in his sights. Skillfully using the inequalities of the ground, they charged at the British from several directions and swallowed up detachments of the buffs, the Scottish rifles, and the mounted infantry as they swooped. Boerter and his men then made it to the dead ground at the foot of the rise, and there they jumped from their spent ponies and clambered forward. As they ran, they screamed like banshees, similar to the rebel yell made famous by the Confederates during the American Civil War. It was also a scream of fear, as anyone knows who's fought a war. Lieutenant Colonel Benson was a mere 30 yards away with only 178 men and now faced Boers charging from the front and both sides simultaneously. It was a brief but murderous fight that followed, and the memory of this incident ran hot for all those involved for the rest of their lives. Nearby, a farmhouse had been left abandoned, its white walls and dilapidated doors a witness to the terrible events that followed. The name of the farm was Barkenlachter, or Low Landmark, a suitable name. The Battle of Barkenlachter had begun. In minutes, the entire gun crews were wiped out, along with the black and coloured drivers and limber teams that had rushed up to try and help. As an officer after another collapsed near him, wounded or dead, Benson was hit in the knee. He refused help, but slumped and then crawled about the anthills that were their only protection, encouraging his men. One of his younger staff officers galloped towards the shooting from the camp, as only the young can do in a gallant show of devotion. He miraculously made it to where Benson crouched, threw the reins of his horse to a trooper, who was immediately shot dead along with the horse. Then the staff officer stood up and walked towards his chief, but was also shot a few yards from Lieutenant Colonel Benson and died. 
Then a quartermaster sergeant, a 21-year-old from the Scottish borders, managed to reach Gun Hill carrying boxes of ammunition. He plucked a rifle from a nearby dead British trooper and picked off half a dozen Boers before he was hit three times, and that was the end of his war and his life. All around this terrible hill were detachments of British soldiers and Boers, small groups fighting to the death. Benson, who was now bleeding heavily from his shattered knee, was then hit a second time. Still, he would not surrender, and the men about him realized this and were resigned to their fate. There was no attempt at waving a white flag. As the mist thinned further, Benson saw movement from the camp as more wagons were being prepared to come to his aid. This would have been the end of the wagons, and the Boers would more than likely use the mules to carry the British artillery away. A trooper volunteered to take a message to the camp to forbid help. As he rose, a bullet struck him in the foot, ricocheted and hit Benson in the chest. He was now mortally wounded. A minute later, the Boers stormed the position five deep and killed and wounded those who still fought, and finally it was over. The rear guard had been defeated, but at great cost to both sides. Boerter then ordered the guns turned around and pointed towards the camp. He wanted to fire a few artillery rounds into the British, but he stopped, realizing that the British would be in a position themselves to surround him. He also knew that his casualties were mounting. More than a hundred Boers had been killed or wounded already. Of the 178 men with Benson, 161 were dead or wounded, and the colonel himself was now dying. The battle was over. In the quiet that followed, the Boers removed the guns into the mist and the British came for their wounded. Benson was still alive and was brought into the camp at 9pm at night, where he refused assistance saying the doctors should treat the men and return when they were less busy. Benson made it through the night until the morning of the 31st he had handed over command to Will Sampson giving him instructions for the defence of the camp. An officer bent over him as dawn broke, the mist still thick about them, when he said, we shall do no more night marching. It is all day now. Goodbye. God bless you. Then he died. Altogether, the British had 358 casualties, which crippled the convoy, and it had to remain where it was until reinforcements arrived. Back in Pretoria, Lord Kitchener received the news later on the 1st of November. The Battle of Barkenlachter was a sickening reminder to the war office and the scribes back at the Spectator and other publications about just how far off victory appeared to be. We have followed the remarkable Johanna van Warmelo at times. Remember, she kept three diaries during the war and was a Boer spy living in Pretoria. On Saturday, November the 2nd, three days after the battle and a day after Kitchener got the news, Johanna wrote... Kitchener of Khartoum looks glum when I meet him on the bridge, and his cap is going more and more into his eyes. His life is not a bed of roses. Kitchener had already sent his telegram asking for more men. Now he was forced to face the fact that the latest news would further aggravate the political and military leadership back home. As Rain Kruger writes in his book, Goodbye Dolly Gray, in their hearts both sides were utterly sick of the business, but the bond had still not fully been paid. Just one additional note as we pass this story. Sadly, Lieutenant Colonel Benson's grave, which is still on Gun Hill, has been vandalized. The bronze letters stolen, the white granite broken. Yet nothing erases the dignity of his final day, whatever your thoughts are of war or the actions of politicians. But now we must halt. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and write a review if you feel motivated.
You can send me a direct message through the website abwarpodcast.com or through Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs>